Thank you for tuning in to The Director's Cut, where we talk to different experts in the areas of funds, regulations, and governance. My name is Carl Brenton, and I've been working in the investment fund space since 2004. I've worked primarily in fund administration, leading and building teams covering both hedge funds and private equity funds as some of the industry-leading service providers. I'm a chartered professional accountant and an accredited director with the Chartered Governance Institute of Canada, and I'm now providing governance services with Channel Capital Cayman. The Directors Cut will cover a wide range of topics aimed to be helpful to those navigating the regulated funds landscape. Whether you're new to the industry or a veteran like most of my guests, we hope that you get some useful and practical information today. Of course, I must note that none of this is legal or investment advice, and we always recommend engaging directly with a professional for your specific circumstance. I'm very happy today to bring on Anna Gulbalt to discuss the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority rules for registered mutual funds and private funds. Anna is a fellow director providing fiduciary services to investment fund structures and has a breadth of knowledge. Having worked as a funds lawyer in the Cayman Islands since 2005, Anna also spent over three years at the Ministry of Financial Services, where she worked on several key pieces of financial services legislation. I'm sure that you'll see Anna's thorough understanding of the regulations, their backgrounds and intentions, and I hope that you take some useful information from this discussion. All right. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for coming on this edition of the Director's Cut. Really happy to have you join us today. I think you're going to add a lot of value to our viewers. Thanks, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here and join you today for this. Good. Uh, so when I was looking to speak to different people um, on the podcast, you were one of the people that immediately came to mind. You know, I, I think given your, your involvement in some of the recent legislation, uh, enacted in, in for investment funds, I think you're going to be able to explain these rules better than, than most. Uh, and I think it's really great to get the context rather than just sitting there reading the rules to actually, you know, get a little bit of the background behind it. Sure. I mean, it's certainly been an interesting time for the Cayman Islands. Um, but what we have seen is that Cayman is, is, you know, continuously evolving and consistently top-ranked international financial centre. You know, we've proven that we're a nimble jurisdiction and that we can evolve to face you know, global regulatory changes um, while always maintaining the highest international standards. Um, and we see that in things like these, these rules that we're going to talk about. Absolutely. Uh, so when we, we first met about a decade ago. Uh, you worked in the private industry back then and you, you moved into a role with uh, the financial services here in Cayman or Ministry of Financial Services here in Cayman. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and then what you're up to now, now that you're back in the industry? Mm -hmm. So, um, as you said, I was in private practice. I am an attorney by training and I practice law and came in for the past 15 years um, That's in the field of investment funds, um, really corporate and regulatory sides so and regulatory compliance and, and legal issues. Um, and I have a broad range of experience over that time, um, you know, regularly advising on the structuring, formation, regulation, restructuring and just the general ongoing operation of hedge and private equity structures um, and working with a wide cross-section of clients as well from big managers to small startups and and working with all their service providers and onshore council etc um, after after my time in private practice like you mentioned i did turn my attention um, to the legislative and policy development side um, of the Cayman Islands financial services industry, um, and specifically engagement on some of the international regulatory initiatives. Um, I served as a consultant to the Ministry of Financial Services 
Um, and I'd help to advise on the development and introduction of several key pieces of financial services legislation that we've seen um, over the past three years. And those include the legislation, legislation relating to compliance um, with economic substance requirements and also the enhancements to our domestic re regulatory regime for investment funds. Um, you know, it's, it's worth saying that given the current local and international regulatory landscape that risk management and regulatory compliance are key priorities for clients, um, regulators and investors alike, um, you know, both wanting greater transparency and enhanced reporting. So it's, you know, it's important for companies to have an increased knowledge of these legal risks that, that are coming. Um, and compliance requires a clear understanding of these ongoing requirements. So hopefully today when we speak about these rules a bit, that will, um, that will help. Um, currently I'm acting as an independent director at Calderwood. Um, I accept appointments in the boards of investment funds and, and related entities in the stru structure, um, you know, providing advice on corporate governance and regulatory compliance. Um, Obviously, I've had the benefit of the time in private practice where I've had um, probably more than I needed worth of exposure to the challenges that investment funds can, can experience. So from a governance perspective, it, I think it can be reassuring to the manager and, and even fellow directors to have among them um, a non-executive familiar with the pitfalls of a complex and ever-growingly complex regulatory landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I it's been a lot of, it's very topical. Some of the, the, the stuff that you've worked on and, you know, the clients, they really seem to have just wanted to, you know, how can you help me with this sort of stuff for, for us working in the industry? So I think you're definitely in a good position to do that with your experience. Um, so for today's discussion, we're going to focus on investment funds, uh, a few of the regulatory measures that came into force last year. So these are the rules related to content of the offering documents. We're going to talk about segregation of assets and then the NAV calculation. So maybe to kick off the discussion, uh, let's just start with some of the basics, like what are the investment funds regulatory measures? Is there hierarchy to this? Are there regulatory measures, you know, or are they considered all together? You know, is something more important than the other? Or are they kind of viewed complementary and as a whole, really? So maybe I'll let you kind of take it from there. Sure. So there is a statutory framework in place and um, it's via the Monetary Authority Act, um, which is the law that kind of sets out um, the parameters un under which the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority Acts. And so the, um, that the Monetary Authority Act um, gives a power to SEMA to issue, amend rules and statements, the guidance and statements of principles, and then also allows for the issuance of a regulatory handbook, which contains the policies and procedures of SEMA. So when we talk about rules and statements of guidance and statements of principle, we're kind of talking about two different sides of, um, of a whole package. So a rule is a clear and kind of precise directive to licensees or registrants on a subject matter that SEMA considers to be essential um, for the prudential supervision of regulated entities. And a rule will actually create a binding obligation on those licensees or registrants. And so if there's a breach that could lead to the imposition of a fine or a regulatory action being taken um, by the licensee, uh, against the licensee by SEMA. A statement of guidance is, is just that, it's guidance. It's intended to assist the licensee to comply with the relevant acts and rules um, and merely contains recommendations on how the licensee should operate. Um, and it's also able to represent a measure against SEMA can assess compliance by a licensee. 
kind of on the other side of that, then you've got regulatory policy, which sets out the principles or criteria um, to guide decisions and actions taken by SEMA itself. So these are SEMA's rules. The first two bits were rules for um, for the licensees, and now this is for SEMA. Um, and similarly, our regulatory procedures, a set of actions or activities um, that SEMA will carry out in performing its regulatory and um, international cooperative functions. So really, it is a package with one side with rules and statement of guidance providing direction to licensees and registrants, and then the opposite side providing the parameters in which SEMA, SEMA operates. So we, um, we do have a whole set of, of new rules um, that came about last year, um, but I'll, I'll take a quick break. Okay, no problem. So I guess the, the rules we, we've talked about so far, um, are those the only regulatory measures that were introduced uh, or the, the only thing that need to be considered? No, so if you, um, if you actually take a look at SEMA's website, um, they have issued over 35 regulatory measures which are applicable to investment funds. And then there are a whole slew of others for all the other regulated areas. Um, and so those are, those are publicly available. Um, the, the website um, is www.sema.ky. Um, and so, you know, it's, there's a lot of information there, which is obviously important to, to anyone operating under the mutual funds law or the private funds act both acts i think we i think we can do a link there there's actually a really good page that has further links that kind of summarizes all the regulatory measures uh, and then we can link to that and then people can jump off from that if they want to get into uh into more of it um okay so i guess why were the new investment fund regulatory measures introduced uh was this a, re a reaction to recommendations from the cfatf evaluation report or another body and what, what are they aiming to achieve Yep. So to be fair, the, the rules are not wholly new. Um, they did exist previously, but they only apply to funds licensed under the Mutual Funds Act. So we actually had these rules sitting out there for licensees. But as you know, there, there are very few funds that are actually licensed entities under the Mutual Funds Act. Um, so it was, it was applicable to a very small body of, of entities. Um, however, in line with the other statutory amendments um, that came in as made to the investment funds regime, um, application of the rules was amended to apply to all funds licensed or registered under the Mutual Funds Act. Uh, and then equivalent rules were introduced for funds registered under the Private Funds Act. And, um, you know, as you kind of hinted at, these changes are reflective of the Cayman Islands commitment as a cooperative jurisdiction, um, also implemented as part of our responsiveness to the dialogue with the European Union. And also just to kind of meet um, other international recommendations. And to be honest, they cover similar ground to existing or proposed legislation that a number of other jurisdictions have also brought in place recently. Um, from a Cayman perspective, um, being a jurisdiction of choice um, for the establishment of funds outside the US, um, you know, we remain at the forefront of legal and regulatory developments. And so we expect that most fund sponsors and investors and even the regulators um, really benefit from, from the alignment of law and best practice in this regard as, you know, in what we're seeing in these rules. Okay. So, um, I mean, the, the requirement to register private funds with CMO was recently enacted. Um, can you maybe just give a little background on that, why it was enacted? It's obviously, it's a big change for operators of Cayman Islands funds. Sure. Um, so 
basically, um, if we take a step back in time, in October of 2019, the Cayman's government announced that it was theirs was an intention to modernize the funds regulation in the Cayman, um, and primarily that was going to be done by introducing a registration regime for closed ended funds. Um, in part, this initiative did arise from the ongoing dialogue with the European Union, um, which had been ongoing with many jurisdictions, as I mentioned. Um, the EU recognizes that Cayman is a leading jurisdiction for investment funds, so really it's unsurprising that they focused on, on Cayman, but Bermuda, BVI, and the Bahamas have also implemented similar frameworks. So this kind of came on the tail end of um, activity that we had in 2018 and 2019, where we introduced a series of measures to introduce economic substance legislation. That was all based on the OECD best practices. Um, and that really didn't impact investment funds. Indeed, they were actually expressly out of scope. Um, but what we saw come out of that was that although the EU acknowledged that fund vehicles are a different nature from entities that were in scope for substance, such as um, IP holding companies, et cetera. The EU did issue some technical guidance um, in May, I think, of 2019, um, which said, you know, the concepts that they, that they thought um, fund jurisdictions should comply with. And it was pretty wide categories. And you'll see that it pretty much mirrors what we've done in our Mutual Funds Act and what we've now done in our Private Funds Act. And it's talks about the authorization of registration of vehicles. So we, we, you know, we've obviously got that, the supervision and enforcement of rules. And then it talks to like valuation, accounting, auditing requirements and depository. So that's basically what um, the new act um, and any amendments to the Mutual Funds Act were, were based on. Um, you know, as you said, Cayman has long had a very solid regime for regulating open-ended funds. Um, and really now we've brought in a regime to register closed-ended funds. Um, I think that this is a positive thing and that the new regime will ensure that Cayman remains the offshore financial center of choice for managers seeking to do business in Europe. And really it supports the Cayman's broader aim of adopting global standards, um, you know, in areas of anti-money laundering and economic substance. So it was February 2020, so it's not been that long that we enacted a Private Funds Act. Um, and really it's, um, it requires registration of private funds. Um, that's all done in a very similar manner to what mutual funds um, do. So for people that may be straddling both sides, um, it wouldn't have been that unfamiliar. Um, and really, um, once registered private funds are subject to requirements in relation to audit. Um, importantly, that means also having um, an audit approved by a Cayman auditor. So that will typically be the branch of your, your Cayman your audit firm. Um, and then, as I mentioned, rules about valuation, safekeeping of assets, cash management, um, and identification of securities. What we found and what was um, intended when, when pretty much drafting the legislation is that most managers um, are able to satisfy these obligations with minimal impact on their existing setup. Um, and they're able to do these functions internally through their internal functions. Um, and we can, we'll talk about this when we get to the contents, um, but you know, most fund offering, fund offering documents also you know, really don't need too much additional language and potential conflicts and stuff like that are already covered. Um, so yeah, so it's really a positive thing, you know, I think in terms of raising capital from investors in the US and the Middle East, um, who largely want to see uh, regulated products in any way, this is, this is probably a good thing.
Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was a lot of concern, obviously, when it was first rolled out. Oh my gosh, this is gonna, you know, wipe out wipe out the private fund industry and came in and everyone was really upset. But I think, you know, really it's it's probably strengthened our position and provided a good framework and kept the type of business that Cayman wants to keep. And certainly when I talk to friends of mine, you know, the partners at different law firms, they're seeing more registrations this year than ever. So certainly it, it shows that, that it hasn't deterred business and it is moving things in the right direction. And I, you know, I think everybody's on board with it now. Um, great. Well, okay. Thanks for that little bit of background. I think, uh, you know, we can jump into the content rules. So maybe just, you know, tell us a bit about the content rules with regards to offering documents, et cetera. For mutual yeah, so, and funds. Yeah. yeah. So, so there are content rules for mutual funds and, and private funds and, um, to kind of start with, so every every mutual fund registered with SEMA, unless it's a master fund or um, what are now being called limited investor funds, which are the old Section 4-4 funds, um, you know, 15 or less group, um, is required to issue an offering document. And that document must describe the equity interest in all material respects and contain information necessary to allow an investor to make an informed decision whether or not they wish to invest. Um, and the rules kind of just speak to things that SEMA expects to, to see. Um, all all fund offering documents were already subject um, to pre-existing statutory obligations with regards to things like misrepresentation and the general common law duties with regard to proper disclosure of material matters. And um, nothing really changes that in these rules. So that, that's a positive thing. Uh, again, we're going to post up the uh, the website link there with regards to uh, where you can find all this. So don't don't expect everyone to to jump in. So um, you know, th there's obviously there's some specific things that need to be included in there. Um, now calculation policies, it, stuff like that. I don't know if you want to speak up to some of that, but maybe also talk about what what are the some of the things that shouldn't be included. You know, maybe promise of performance or you know, how, 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 what are the rules around the, the materials being distributed? Like, you know, can you just post up your offering document on our website and anybody can access it, you know, uh, the name private placement memorandum, like, you know, what, what are those rules? So um, rules about distribution are obviously going to be quite um, complicated and depend about, depend on which jurisdictions and area you're going to into. So, um, that, that can also be a quite wide conversation um, in respect of the Cayman specific issues. Um, you know, you, you can't just make a general offering to the, the public in the Cayman Islands and um, that doesn't include things like other exempted companies. Um, what we do have in terms of the Cayman specific is that um, the content rules will apply to any any kind of series of documents um, that you that are you're using to offer your interests, but they won't specifically apply to just um, notices or circulars or advertisements. Um, if prior to actually investing in, um, the investors had an opportunity to consider an offering document which complies with their content rules, so it would be that offering document that they actually make the basis of their investment on, which needs to needs to comply. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, the disclosure rules largely reflect existing disclosure practices for Cayman funds. Um, I mean, I think most people would think that they kind of codify what people had already understood to be the requirements for inclusion in an offering document. 
Um, and as I said, they don't really impact any existing duty of disclosure. Um, and then and otherwise in terms of distribution and obviously complying with, with rules in other jurisdictions. Um, so one thing that is important to know is that although limited investor funds, the old section four four funds, um, while they're not required to have an offering document, um, if they do prepare an offering document, they do intend to have an offering document that needs to comply with the rules. Um, and um, another thing that's that's quite important, and maybe we can either put up the body of it um, in the notes or again, give a link, is that there is one amendment in the rules um, which is actually required. Um, and it's the inclusion of a new disclaimer relating to the consequence of registration by, by SEMA. Um, and basically, uh, I'll just read it from the rule. It just says a mutual fund licensed issue, um, mutual fund licensed or registered by the Canadian Monetary Authority does not constitute an obligation of the authority to any investor. And it kind of goes on from there. So it's really covering off from this that SEMA as a regulator, this is this still remains a light touch system. SEMA so, um, is not in any way um, vetting the offering and giving any guarantees as to the performance. Sure. But this is a new requirement, and so it does mean that new offering documents should include it, and updates when those are performed um, should be may require some adjustment. Um, a lot of funds actually think have very similar language, and may just need a few words difference. But it's it's pretty much um, language that people may be used to. But um, it is something that, um, as you know, time goes, that people will, will need to include it. SEMA haven't actually given any prescribed time frame in which the the rules um, well the rules are enforced, but there's not been a prescribed time frame that offering documents need to be updated. Um, so really, it should just be as um, as your offering documents are updated, either by way of supplement or full update. This is something that you can look to to make sure that that you cover off on. Right, and that wording's in 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 the, uh, those rules, right? It's just it's pretty cut and paste. It's not, you know, not necessarily something you have to get your lawyer to go do for you. You know, you, exactly. It's cut and paste. Yeah. The following yeah. it gives you the exact word for word of what you need to have there. Right. Good stuff. All right. Well, why don't we uh, switch gears to some of the valuation rules? Um, I, you know, I've spent the past sixteen years in fund administration, uh, so this is definitely topic is dear to my heart. Um, so maybe can you go through what are the valuation rules and what type of funds do they apply to? Is it both private and mutual funds? Sure. So they do apply to both mutual and private funds. Um, and the, the key premise of the rules is that the fund must establish, implement, and maintain a NAV calculation policy that ensures the NAV is fair, complete, neutral, I think verifiable, and free from error. On the private fund side, um, there's a further requirement that the fund's NAV must be, must be reliable. So um, the policy, the rules set out a number of requirements that the valuation policy must adhere to, and there, the deviations from this are permitted, um, provided they're disclosed, um, or there's a satisfactory reason not to do so. Um, and then there's also a requirement to disclose to investors, but to kind of canter through them pretty quickly, um, the valuation policy pretty much requires that your policy must be written and disclosed in the funds offering document. Um, so what you might find is that funds will have a separate policy or they may rely on the, the manager's policy. Um, and then they, you know, they obviously have the relevant disclosure and their offering document and the types of things that should be in the policy. Um, you know, just describe the practical and working pricing and valuation policies. Um, 
you know, just requirements as to when calculation is done. And SEMA says that should be at least quarterly. Um, you know, um, and it's not in addition to when it will be calculated, how it will be used, how it will be published. You need to obviously advise what the accounting principles or reporting standards that you're using. Um, it also wants you to define the role and responsibilities of your service providers in the valuation process, um, which is an important one because obviously um, there is scope for the investment manager to be involved, provided all the necessary disclosures are there. Um, and then, you know, in terms of there's a bit more in terms of identifying price sources for each type of instrument and escalation for um, resolution on anything and, and management of exceptions. Um, and then there is um, having internal controls. And, you know, as with most things, these just need to be appropriate to the size and complexity and nature of the fund's operations. So those will really, you know, be specific to the fund itself. Um, so that's, that's kind of what the, the rule sets out as to what needs to be included. Okay. Um, I mean, we can talk a little bit about um, who can do this or, you know, so you let me know what, you, what you'd like to hear a bit more about. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess let, let's talk about registered mutual funds first. So, you know, um, does, do, do the rules address things like hard to value securities? You know, are you allowed to use pricing models? Um, what, what, what are the, some of the, the things around that? Yep. So basically the rules, um, the rules have given a definition about hard to value securities and basically it's, um, you know, where there's no market price. So meaning that there's no, that fair value. Um, so fair value must be measured in accordance with the definition, the rules. And then in the case of a hard to value security, um, the rules basically say that priority should be given to valuation inputs that are observable. So you're looking at, you know, things that are derived from market data, publicly available information, events, transactions. Um, so things that, that I think you'd pretty much be accustomed to, um, you know, and they kind of do set it out where, you know, they say lowest priority should be given to inputs where the market data is not available. Um, so, so that's kind of what they're saying about hard to value securities. And then um, funds can use pricing models um, to determine a, a fair value for hard to value securities. Um, um, to the extent appropriate um, and to obviously address the risk of material error, the, um, the fund should try to calibrate pricing models by verifying the inputs used um, and testing, using testing to make sure that the pricing models reflect current market conditions. Um, and I think one of the things that SEMA is really kind of want to ensure that when you're applying a pricing model, you take into account all information which is reasonably available at the NALF calculation date. And that would be considered by a market participant um, in the application of the pricing model. But you don't actually need to undertake any exhaustive efforts to obtain that information. So I think that's, nope. um, yeah, sorry, go, go. No, no, uh, just, just to, if, if you're finished up, I guess, you know, that with registered mutual funds, um, typically there's administrator appointed, um, I guess, who, who can act as a service provider charged with NAV preparation? And do, does that service provider need to be licensed by SEMA? What, what kind of oversight do they have there? Yeah, so SEMA, um, there's no requirement that the service provider needs to be licensed by SEMA. So what we're looking for um, is for the NAV to be calculated by a competent service provider. So, um, you know, that's something for people to, to make a determination on their own and obviously do their own due diligence on. Um, and what it actually um, is looking for is a competent service provider that is independent of the investment manager or advisor and the operators, the directors, 
um, and who has the capability to value the portfolio and also to adhere to the, the valuation policy. Um, but as we've kind of spoken about, um, you know, there, there are, there is the ability to have the NAV um, calculated by um, the investment manager if that's necessary. Um, so the investment manager may be involved in the calculation of the NAV, um, provided that this is disclosed um, and that you know, the investment manager provides supporting information to the service provider for calculating the NAV to take you know, the necessary steps to verify that information. And then just kind of as we'd normally expect, you know, um, there's a requirement to disclose any conflicts of interest caused by the investment manager's involvement in the NAV calculation process. Okay. Um, yeah, you kind of covered off my next couple of questions there. Um, so you mentioned the valuation policy must be written and disclosed and the funds offering documents. So what are the offering document disclosure requirements? And then does it, who, you know, who, who's responsible for checking that that's being followed? Is it the auditor, the administrator? What, you know, where's the oversight that the valuation policy is being followed? Yep. So, I mean, in terms of disclosure, I think we've talked about some, but really we're looking um, for the disclosure to kind of explicitly describe any inherent limitations in the valuation policy, um, any material involvement by the investment manager in pricing the portfolio, um, or otherwise in the calculation or determination of math, and, and then, as we said, any conflicts of interest. Um, the offering docs should also disclose any conflicts caused um, by the investment manager when we're talking about hard to value securities. So that should also be um, fully disclosed. Um, in terms of checks, um, while the funds auditor may typically check that the valuation policy matches what's happening in practice, um, I mean, I think it's important for the funds directors to you know, always bear in mind that they've got ultimate responsibility for oversight of the entire evaluation process. And they must approve and review that process um, at least annually, according to the rules. Um, so that's the calculation policy and, and any pricing models as well. Um, so fund boards should you know, really ensure that they're getting really good reports from the administrator and the investment manager on this stuff. Um, so really they want to ensure that the pricing and valuation practices and the policies and procedures around that, which have been established, um, are maintained and that, you know, they also comply with the requirements of the rule. Um, and really the fund should be um, consistently applying any policy and pricing models unless there's a satisfactory reason not, not to do so. Um, and, you know, these deviations just, just need to be disclosed. Um, and when they have an actual impact on the reported NAV, then they should be disclosed to the investors um, and agreed by the GP directors in advance of the production of the NAV. Okay. Um, I think you kind of covered off what does this mean for funds operators? Uh, I guess anything to add on that, like the operators of the fund really have to, to watch out for? Um, no, I mean, again, just to, just to reiterate, you know, really important to have, you know, frequent contact delaying with the people that are providing the appropriate reporting, whether that be the investment manager, the funds administrator, um, and just, you know, make sure that you, you really do maintain proper oversight of the entire valuation process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, why don't we, uh, let's switch over to the registered private funds now. Um, obviously the mutual funds that, Regime has been in place for a long time. It's you know pretty tried and tested. Um, so I guess switching to private funds, do do these valuation rules apply to the private funds? Um, 
can you can you kind of walk us through through what's what's uh, happening there in the in the new rules? Yeah. So um, so valuation is actually um, hardwired into the Private Funds Act in a way that it, it doesn't appear in the Mutual Funds Act. Um, so in addition to the requirements in the Act, then then we have we have the rules, and it's pretty much the same thing. Um, you know that you want it fair, reliable, complete, neutral, and free from material error. And I mentioned this to extra that it needs to be verifiable. The items that need to appear in the policy um, pretty much mirror what we just talked about in terms of the mutual fund side. Um, so you know the rules pretty much identical. So there's not. Um, really too, too much to say there, um, other than that, um, really, even in terms of private funds where the asset um, may not be one where you're gonna see much movement from that SEMA is expecting that there, um, you know, is still an annual valuation. Um, so that's something that, um, you know, that you may, investment managers will wanna consider and determine how they, how they deal with and how they deal with that in terms of, um, doing that valuation and the policy around that because um, obviously that can vary widely for the different types of private equity style assets. Got it. So you mentioned fair value a few times. What What is the importance of this uh, aspect? So basically, um, unless the accounting um, reporting standards require otherwise, um, what SEMA is expecting is that um, your valuation policy requires you to value your investments on the basis of a fair value. And um, not being an accountant, um, I do I understand that their fair value can vary depending on what you're looking at. Um, but what Seymour is looking at is that, um, and in the context of the rules that, that they've issued is a price that would be received for the sale of an asset um, or paid to transfer it just in an orderly transaction between market participants at the measurement date. Um, so, so that's that's actually what's what Seymour looking to, unless unless you have something else, depending on your accounting standards. Um, and then again, you know, it really comes down to using um, techniques that are appropriate for for the fund and, and its assets. You know, so you're going to be looking at the nature of the assets, the facts, and the circumstances of, of the investment. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, Seema is looking for valuation on an annual basis. Um, um, so unless unless there really is a satisfactory reason not not to do so, so that's some, that's really something to consider and, and to bear in mind. Um, and obviously, where deviations on the valuation policy are needed, um, and where they're likely to have an affected um, effect on the reported valuation, then you know we need to think again about um, communication to investors um, and approving and you know having the GP approve that in advance. Um, so it's, it's really quite similar to what we've seen on, on the fund side, right. on the mutual funds side. On the mutual funds, right. So again, saying a lot of this the same, uh, I assume that the private funds can use the pricing models as well? Yep, they, they can. And it, it's um, the definitions are pretty much the same. Um, you know, again, we're looking at there being no active mar uh, market price um, for identical assets um, that the fund can access on that date. And then, you know, taking, you know, to the extent appropriate, um, addressing the risk of material error and calibrating pricing models and um, really just by verifying and testing um, based on current market conditions. And uh, on that valuation, 
who's allowed to be appointed. I, I believe this is called a section section 16 person to to value the fund's assets. Like, can it be the manager? Who, who's allowed to do that that function? Yeah. So what I mentioned, as I mentioned, um, the valuation functions are actually hardwired into the Private Funds Act, and, and it's in Section 16, and so that's a Section 16 person. <laughs> um, and really, um, it this needs to be a competent service. Again, it, it starts out with a competent service provider who's independent of the investment manager, um, and then it gives you, you know, breaks it down to, if not, then um, you can have... Um, somebody else do it. You have an investment manager do it, provided that you make the necessary disclosures, um, and um, and you know you just provide any explanation as to why somebody else could could not do that. Um, so it definitely doesn't prevent the involvement of the the operators or the involvement of the investment manager where where that's necessary. Okay, and uh, again, similar to the mutual funds, a fund, you know, if they devi- deviate from their valuation policy. There's certain requirements. Uh, obviously, it comes down to disclosure, right? So, le- letting letting the investors know what's going on. Disclose, disclose, disclose. <laughs> uh, um, uh, anything specific on the NAB disclosure requirements for the funds um, that, that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about? Well, I mean, I guess what we can just say is that not all private funds are going to have marketing materials or offering documents. Um, so it may be that what we're seeing is that it's the LPA or whatever the other constitutional document or, or some other form of investor communication that's going to describe, um, you know, just if there are any inherent um, limitations or conflicts in the valuation policy, um, you may just see the, that information being disseminated in a, in a different way than you would than you would maybe otherwise expect. On the mutual fund side, got it. Um, I guess you, you talked a little bit about annual um, annual valuation. What type of communication needs to go to the investors about the NAV, and is there a prescribed frequency with regards to that communication? If you're getting an annual valuation, does that also have to be communicated annually, or or how, yeah. you know what what is some of the stuff around that? So it's um you know it's it's pretty much what people are used to, especially when they're using third-party administrators. Um, so the NAV should be communicated directly to the investors. Um, you know that's everybody on on record, um, and you know it's it's kind of the usual information that you would expect. You know their share or balance of the NAV per unit. Um, the frequency is not prescribed, but would obviously typically follow the frequency of your NAV calculation. Um, and really, you know, that can be done by the administrator or the investment manager. Um, and however, that's typically being done, you know, uh, we would probably see the administrator doing that on the mutual fund side and maybe the investment manager um, doing it on the private fund side. Um, you know, SEMA have... Um, Seem have kind of indicated that in terms of um, best practice or, or good market practices, really just ensuring that investors are kept abreast of the performance. Um, and I think Seema is cognizant that, especially in the you know the private fund side, um, you know investors are aware that their capital contributions um, may not be distributed until the timeframe set out in, in the fund documents, um, but they're they still have a. Um, belief that investors should still be made aware of the fund's performance on an ongoing basis. Um, and so I think that's what kind of follows um, to this, you know, annual annual evaluation being required. Um, but, you know, as I said, the Private Funds Act does provide various ways in which those obligations can be, can be met. Um, so, you know, we do remain kind of 
flexible in those regards. Yeah, yeah. I think what I've typically seen throughout my career, you know, private funds being valued on a quarterly basis. And again, I think that's just kind of investor driven uh, and manager driven. They want to be transparent and, you know, give, give current values and be engaged with, with their, uh, with their limited partners. So um, I, I, I guess, what, so what does all this mean for the private fund operators? No, it's pretty much it's pretty much what you would see on the mutual fund side. Um, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but you know, ultimate responsibility for oversight of the entire process. Uh, you know, making sure that this is it's all being approved and reviewed at least annually, um, and you know, just keeping kind of on top of the whole process. Okay, uh, something that's come out recently is the 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 the, the concept of AIVs. Um, so I guess maybe can you just touch on you know, did the rules on calculation of NAV apply to the, to the AIVs and maybe just a, a quick explanation of what an AIV is? Yeah. So, um, so most um, private fund equity, um, private equity fund arrangements um, will have um, some provision either um, in the LPA or otherwise um, permitting or in certain circumstances, um, actually requiring the general partner to establish an AIV, an alternative investment vehicle. Um, and that can be for tax or regulatory reasons. And, right. and then that entity will be created to make a portfolio investment in lieu of the, the main fund. Um, so it's, it is a separate entity from the main um, fund, fund vehicle. Um, so what, in terms of practical example, you know, you might see a Delaware Limited Partnership um, establish a, a Cayman AIV to make an investment in a company organized outside outside the U.S. Um, so really, it's, you know, it's just all part of the actual investment structure of the, the private equity. You know, the, the entities are all part of a compound to, together, and it's just the, the structure that's being used to, to make to make the investment. Um, and like I said, regulatory tax reasons typically um, or what's driving that. Um, so this is um, obviously in terms of Cayman and knowing the structures, um, this has been brought in as a kind of way to try and help um, avoid any duplication or, or over-regulation for, for, from a Cayman perspective. So the private funds act provides a definition of an AIV, and it's um it's basically a um, an entity that's formed in accordance with the constitutional documents of a private fund. So you know it's that same direction in the LPA that says you will create um, or you may for you know for making, holding, disposing of one or more investments. Um, and then the second kind of limb of that is that um, the only partners. Um, shareholders, et cetera, um, are people that are also members of the, 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 the main private fund. Um, and really this kind of comes from, the private funds really kind of codifies, and I mentioned, you know, a lot of it was based on the EU AFMD. Um, so it kind of codifies a number of more investor-friendly operational requirements, um, which um, in practice are not going to really be new to any to sophisticated investors, um, but they do help um, these kind of this stuff with the IVs helps avoid duplications. Um, so it specifically provides an exemption from the requirements for IVs um, to have to um, comply with the valuation rules, um, where the accounting standards um, allow for the IV to be consolidated or the main fund to consolidate or combine the IV with its accounts. So as long as you can do that, um, then the valuation requirements won't apply to the IV. Um, and generally, um, the rules then 
so the so the requirements in the Private Funds Act and and separately the rules on calculation of net net asset value wouldn't apply to these CIFBs. All right. I, I guess just kind of wrapping up this section on mutual and uh, on, on the valuation rules. Um, I, I think a big question operators or have in, in this current environment is what does enforcement look like, and is this something that SEMA is looking at? Certainly, we've seen um, you know judgments going out against uh, different service providers, but uh, I guess you know what what are we seeing with the funds specifically? Yeah, so SEMA, um, SEMA do have enforcement powers um, in respect of the rules, and they've obviously got um, powers under the applicable legislation, um, and they um, expect we'll have the ability to impose admin penalties for non-compliance as well. But um, as we talked about, you know, this is all quite recent, the introduction of the legislation and the associated rules. Um, and there have been delays in some of the reporting, um, the introduction of the fund annual um, report, the FAR was delayed, and some of the filing of the first audited financials um, for those entities have been delayed. Um, so it's probably fair to say that at this point there hasn't probably been sufficient reporting to allow SEMA to do um, inspections and et cetera at this point to really start looking to bring in fines. But that said, this is definitely an area of importance. It's you know, the safety it provides to investors. So I think it's the space space to watch and to one want to make sure that you've got your ducks lined up because um, it will likely be something that SEMA is going to be looking at quite closely. Absolutely. I don't think you or I want, want, want to get a fine for, for, uh, for, for not following the rules. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and you know, and the operators of the fund to make a declaration um, that these requirements, um, the private fund that these requirements have been complied with. Right. Right. Okay. I think uh, last, last thing, uh, I know we've been running for a bit, but it's been really helpful. It's been a great conversation so far. I think, um, you know, something I remember when this came up with private funds, the, the segregation rules. Um, so maybe you can just give us a little bit of background on the segregation rules, why they're enacted, what, what's the aim of that? Obviously, they've been around in, in the mutual funds for a long time, but, you know, um, it's a little less clear on, on private funds how that works. Yep. So, um, so they're... The rules on segregation of assets, you know, again, applicable um, to both um, mutual funds and private funds. Um, and the kind of overriding requirement is that none of the service providers use any of the assets or liabilities of the fund to finance their own um, or any other operations in, in, in any way. Um, so mutual funds are required to appoint a service provider with regard to insurance safekeeping, which, you know, it's, it's pretty much par for the course. Um, so that's fine. And the service provider definition is actually quite wide because it, it includes auditors, administrators, custodians. Um, so it's, it's quite wide. Um, um, so you don't necessarily need to appoint a third-party service provider, but I think on the mutual fund side, we would, we would typically see that, that happening. Um, in both cases, really, I think it's important that um, really for the fund just to ensure that the service provider holding or managing the portfolio also complies with this requirement. So that's just doing your own due diligence, making sure that you're papering this in the correct way. Because um, ultimately, ultimately, it's really going to be up to the fund to ensure that none of its service providers use the portfolio um, to finance or you know, to use it in any other way. Um, so it's just kind of ensuring from your perspective that, you, that you've got that right. 
Yeah. Are there any exemptions um, with regards to that music the segregation? Yeah. Yeah. So the rule the rule does kind of um, set out a few things, and it's um, basically um, you know something that I give everybody an opportunity to read on their own. But um, things like um, remitting redemption proceeds, um, you know, it won't be won't be considered paying you know, any fees, charges, expenses. Um, that are payable by an, an investor, um, you know, on a transfer, for example, um, won't be included. Um, just, you know, disposing or acquiring of assets for investment purposes um, in accordance with the offering documents wouldn't be included. Um, you know, things like paying fees that are properly payable by the fund, you know, all those things um, wouldn't be. One that's created um, a little bit of confusion in the beginning, and I think there's been a, there's been a fair bit of um, steps taken to, to clarify was on the transfer and reuse of, of assets. Um, so basically rehypothecation. Um, and it, the rules specifically say that transfer and reuse is permitted if consented to by the fund and, and disclosures are made. Um, and just to kind of give a bit of background on that one, um, when the rules were first issued on this in, um, I think, um, summer, early summer, May, 2020, um, there was some concern within industry that they did not um, necessarily reflect the day-to-day operation um, of the kind of prime brokerage and custody arrangements that's that's usually seen. Um, and so CMA took that on board and the rules were subsequently amended a couple of months later in July um, to clarify that the rule doesn't in any way prohibit um, prime brokerage or custody arrangements that allow um, a sub-custodian or custodian to hold client assets in a co-mingled client um, omnibus account along with other assets of clients. Um, so that that has been been clarified. And I think CMA then also went a bit further um, in addition to clarifying the rule. Um, they issued a notice, um, an industry notice, um, just confirming that commingling of client assets um, in the context of custody or sub-custody arrangements, um, you know, kind of provided that was in accordance with the established and accepted industry practice really, um, would not be prohibited by, by the rules. And so that, that was, I think, a very um, important clarification. Um, and then there was one more amendment after that, um, where SEMA then in September of 2020, so at least a year ago now, um, they made a further amendment to both sets of rules for private funds and mutual funds just to make clear that transfer and reuse um, as consented to by the fund doesn't constitute um, the financing of a service provider or the custodian's own operations. Um, Again, provided that those arrangements uh, were disclosed in the offering document or otherwise disclosed to investors before they invested in Fund. Disclose, 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 right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, so, what are the duties of the operators with regards to uh, the segregation? What, you know, what are we? What are we? What, what's our expectation? So, um, the operators again are on the hook. <laughs> uh, they need to ensure that <laughs> regulated fund, you know, establishes and then they implement and they maintain um, or not necessarily maintain themselves, but oversee um, that they establish implementation and maintain strategies, policies, controls, and procedures to ensure compliance, um, the the segregation rules. And again, this just needs to be consistent with the offering document um, or marketing materials. 
Um, and as we've said before, you know, what, what the fund does and the policies that it sets up just need to be um, appropriate with the size and complexity and nature of the fund's activities um, and, and also its investors. Um, the segregation rule um, will require regulated mutual fund to ensure that verification um, is is done and that it's provided and there's available external information. Um, so, you know, the fund wants to know that um, the fund holds title to any assets and there's a record being maintained about those. Um, and really that should be done by an administrator or other independent third party. Um, or if that's not possible, then the manager or operator um, provided that that's done independently of the portfolio management function um, and that um, or that the potential conflicts are properly identified and um, managed, monitored, and disclosed. Um, and that language there is in the rule for mutual funds, and it's actually um, hardwired into the Private Funds Act as well. Um, really, on the mutual fund side, that, that verification function is probably already going to be done by your administrator and auditor as part of their existing processes. Um, but otherwise, you know, your, your manager may also do that subject to it being carried out independently from their portfolio management function and the conflicts being identified and managed and disclosed. Got it. Got it. Uh, I think you kind of covered off what action was required, but if, yeah. if there's anything to, to touch on there. But um, I guess uh, winding up, are, are there any special considerations for private funds and what are the practical considerations when you're appointing a custodian for a private fund, you know, you're holding different types of assets, you know, holding securities that you can hold a prime brokerage. What, you know, in practice, how is this being done and how, how does it solve this issue? Yeah, I think the good news is that recognizing that this is not always going to be possible, um, it's not actually necessary for the vast majority of private funds to actually um, appoint a custodian. Um, and this is dealt with through a section 17.3, um, I think, of the Private Funds Act, um, which provides that a private fund is not required to appoint a custodian if it has notified SEMA that it's neither practical or, nor proportionate for it to do so. Um, and that's taking into regard the nature of the private fund and the type of asset it holds. Um, so really, in that case, the obligations of the fund in relation to custodians are not, are not going to be relevant. Okay, right. And then uh, I guess kind of last one, uh, we keep touching on this a little bit, is you know, what do you expect with regards to enforcement in this area? Yep, I think it's going to be pretty much what we talked about on um, on, on, on the, the valuation rules. Um, you know, there, there are powers there, and we can expect that... Um, once the appropriate time period has passed and appropriate reporting has started going on, that it will be something that SEMA um, may be able to impose, may begin to impose admin penalties for non-compliance. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think that's it. We, we covered off a lot here. Um, I think it's going to be really helpful for different people. I think, you know, your, your background's been been very helpful and very explanatory and uh, gives a little little more to it than just sitting there reading it. Again, we'll, we'll post up the links for everybody. Um, and certainly I'll, I'll, we'll have your contact details. If anybody has any questions, they can uh, reach out and, and, and ask you and uh, certainly reach out to me as well. Uh, but it's been great to have you on, Anna. Thanks uh, so much uh, for taking the time today and uh, look forward to speaking again. It's been a pleasure. It's been great catching up. 
I'm Carl Brenton, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Director's Cut. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me by visiting our website at channel.capital or emailing carl.brenton at channelcapital.ky.